You are the God of creation. And you are the God of love. We want to know you and we want to hear you and we want to know what you want us to do to obey your will. And so we boldly ask for you to reveal yourself to us today. <coughs> right now, excuse me, <coughs> right now in this time, in this space, in this morning, throughout this day, we give ourselves to you and we pray that you come upon us with your Holy Spirit in a powerful way so that we are transformed. We thank you that you have gathered us here together and we claim the promise that wherever two or more are gathered, you are with us also. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Terry. Well, there's a few people that have uh, decided that it was God's will for us to be here this morning. You've all decided to come. You discern God's will properly. And we should pray for those that didn't, right? <laughs> By way of review, and, and I just, Rich, I just thought of something that might be helpful for this, is if, if you wrote that down on a piece of paper and we could pass it around, that way if they didn't quite get the letter right, they could get it. We've talked about knowing the will of God coming through those art overarching principles that we handed out in the first week, and I think we've got copies of them floating around here if you missed that. And I'm not going to go over each and every one of them, but the sheet's there for you. We've also said that knowing the will of God comes through knowing the Word of God, and that that is an exegesis, not an eisegesis, meaning that we go to the Word of God and say, God, speak to me, rather than I'm going into the Word and saying, God, I'm speaking to you to tell you what that really means. And also that we can't leave logic out, that we have to think about things rationally. Lot, knowing the will of God comes through logic. And we've also said that in all of these concepts, there's an important attitude, and the attitude is that we should know our mind. We should know what we believe. We should know what we really believe. But our mind should not be made up to the point where God can't get in. That we need to have our minds and our hearts open in such a way that through the Holy Scripture or through evident reason, using Martin Luther, that we can be formed and reformed by God through his word and through his Holy Spirit. So, know our minds, but not have our minds made up. We also have come to the conclusion that God's will for our lives is ultimately to be righteous, and that we are to be in obedience to that. And if we, so attitudinally, if we come to this and we're just saying, I know what's right, and God, you can't change me. Well, obviously, that's not the will of God, is it? So the will of God comes that our hearts are open to really being righteous and obeying him. And that is assuming that we really believe that sin is evil, and sin really bothers God. And if we really love God and are seeking the will of God, we don't want to sin. 
And sometimes we get into that, it's just a little sin, that's okay. And it's not really to God. And then last week, we talked about the seven specifics of discerning God's will, of how we use Scripture and prayer, how, how we go through these various um, processes and thought, thoughts, including checking with other godly people, visions, dreams, fasting, all of those kinds of things that help us get to the will of God. Now, I'd like, I'd like to just give you kind of an overview because we could get to this fourth week and I'm sure that there's some that are very frustrated. Of course, they didn't come back. But uh, we're, we're frustrated from a couple of different perspectives. And, and the difference between somebody believing that we are successful or not is the difference between what people's expectation is and what reality is. And so your expectation coming in to, about the will of God, I may not have met that expectation, and so you're disappointed, and I, and I want to apologize for that. And maybe we can do this again and we can hit some better points, but some of it may be that we come wanting answers. Like, give me an answer to this or give me an answer to that. I could, I could attempt to answer every single ethical dilemma that you would have, but probably most of them wouldn't be shared by the rest of the people around the class. I could try to give you specific things about knowing the will of God on every life decision you have to make or every doctrinal belief. I, I've tried to stay out of a out of some of those specific things because what I'm attempting to do is to help us to know how to think. I'm attempting to help us to know how to go through these concepts on our own because next week we don't have the class and you're going to have an ethical dilemma. You're going to have a life situation. You're going you're to say, should I take my grandchild into my house? Should I change jobs should I how do I deal with my kid who's done this or that and you're going to have to know how to go on and so in some ways a good teacher is someone whose goal is to become unnecessary a good teacher is someone whose goal is to be unnecessary if we can teach people how to think and reason and and pursue God so hopefully as an overview that's that's what, what, what we've been doing, and I'm hoping just to kind of ad adjust a little bit of the expectation of, of what we're trying to do. But I also talked to Pastor Dave that maybe there would be a time in the future in which we could really come down to two, three, five, half a dozen issues or uh, th situations in life, and we could practice these principles that we've talked about and really kind of help get to some of that because it does take practice to know the will of God. You can't know the will of God just quickly. It takes some practice, and we're trying to give some of the basics here. So with all of that, um, kind of as a review and a backdrop to where we're going, um, I, I want to I say just a couple of things as we move towards where I want to go today. Some other considerations. 
can we, in knowing the will of God, can we then judge other people? Like, okay, I know the will of God, and they're obviously not doing that, so I can judge them. Sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't. And sometimes, yes, anything that's spelled out clearly in Scripture, we can make a judgment. That's not a condemnation. That is simply, I'm making a decision about that. Notice the difference. I, I can judge between an apple and an orange because I can tell by their color, by their taste, by their aroma, by the tree that they came off of, I can tell what it is. That's a judgment. It's not a condemnation. And so, yes, we can, and you do that, and I do that. We, last week we talked about if there is someone who's abusing a child, we right away can say that is evil. We can tell that. But what's the foundation? The foundation is biblical. The foundation comes out of the scriptures. That's not me deciding that. That's not you deciding that. It is the scriptures that inform us about that. So yes, there are some times that we can say that is evil. And this is why we at times go and do certain activities to free those who are oppressed, to free those who are in need of something. Sometimes no, anything that's not clearly spelled out in Scripture. How do you keep the Lord's Day? We're supposed to keep the Lord's Day holy as a separate day. But how you do that and how others do that is not necessarily always lined out in Scripture. There is some choice in the matter. We can judge and say to not honor the Lord's Day is definitely not biblical, but how someone does that, Jerry watches football, and I pray for his soul. Uh, you don't have any football today, though, do you? So you're not going to sin today. So, but Buckeyes play basketball. <laughs> Against who? Ah. Uh. <laughs> So, you get what I'm saying? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But always with grace. Always with grace. That is the overarching biblical principle. That whether we can judge something, not condemn, but judge something, it should always be done in love, with grace. With the recognition that because I've got, I know my mind, but my mind's not made up, that person that is doing something that I think right now is not biblical, I may have to change my mind about that because they've shown me through Holy Scripture or through evident reason that the error of my ways. And so with grace, we're trying to recognize these things that I may need to change. And then the last thing before we get into today is what do we do then when we have become convicted about something that we've done that was not in the will of God? 
which has led us to unrighteousness. What do we do then? We've done something in our life and we have now come to the conviction that that was really wrong and evil. Well, we do what we do every week in our worship. Dave, what do we do every week? We confess our sin. And so many times in that confessional, it's based upon 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And that's where we start. And we go back and say, okay, Lord, I thought maybe that was right, or at the very least, I never consulted you. I just did it. And now I'm convinced that it's evil. It was wrong. Now, Lord, I'm coming to confess and repent. And repent means that we go a different direction, that we're going a different direction. So, today, let's take a look at, um, and I don't know where that sheet went, but Dave, I, got, I need that sheet that I gave you today. Yeah, I just need one to follow along. The, a lot of times people are wondering about job situations and um, how, how, do I, how do I see myself in, in vocational and the sheet that I gave today specific ways to know God's will for our vocation what are your spiritual gifts if you've never taken those spiritual gifts test or you at least have read through those passages of scripture it would be good to figure out what your spiritual gifts are and what are your natural gifts and these aren't specifically spelled out in Scripture, what the natural gifts are. But we know that some people are musical, some people are athletic, some people are more intellectual, or they have understandings in intellectual areas. They have different gifts. And these are, a, how to know what we're supposed to do in life is from the Scripture, spiritual gifts, and also knowing our natural gifts, our natural propensities, and trying to identify what the purpose of your life is, the purpose of life in general and the purpose of your life in specific. I would ask you this question. What, it, what, is, what is it that we can do here on earth better than we can do in heaven? Anybody? Go ahead. Reach out to others. Be God's, be God's hands. We can we do that in heaven? Not not in the same way. So okay, reach out. What else can we do on earth better? For those listening by tape, there is nothing being said. <laughs> is that because there's nothing else? Pardon me? <laughs> it's hard to tell. Go ahead. Seek to know God's will on earth. But when we get there, it will be open. It will be open. It'll be it'll be when once we get there we'll know it. I sometimes get the answer to that question that we can suffer better on earth. 
which is interesting, isn't it? But I think that even our suffering is given to us to do exactly what Joe had said, that it is to be an outreach to people, that if we suffer well as Christians because we understand that God has purpose in it, it's much better than any other religious tradition in the, in the whole world. It's part of the reason why I choose Christianity, why I follow Christ, because it, it is more logical. It, it makes more sense, even with the suffering. It makes sense of my suffering. It doesn't make me feel less pain, necessarily. But if, we, if we've come to that conclusion, and I'm open to others maybe saying, oh, what about this, what about that, but most people say, I can share my faith, I can reach out to others, maybe sometimes through suffering on earth. Other than that, when I get to heaven, I can talk to God better. I'm going to be able to worship God better. I'm going to be able to relate to other people better. I'm going to be, my wife hopes that I'll be able to sing better. <laughs> I'm, I have that one down, Dave. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. That, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> and so if that's all true, then the purpose of our life really is to know Christ, to come to know Christ, and then to make him known. It really does come down to that. And so in knowing the will of God, we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we doing on that? How are we doing? How are we doing on knowing Christ? And how are we doing on making him known? That's, that's, I think, a pretty foundational part of knowing what we should do then vocationally in our lives. And then the next three points on your sheet there, does it honor God's law? If we're involved in something as a vocation that would not honor God's law, automatically it shouldn't be part of what we think for our vocation. Does it enhance and better life? Does it serve the general welfare? Does it lead to your and others' spiritual welfare and attaining eternal life? In other words, coming out of Romans, is there anything that we're doing that are causing other people to not be able to develop spiritually and get to heaven? So, this better life, does it enhance better and better life? Does it serve the general welfare? Let me give you two examples from, from the Quaker tradition. There was a, a man who very, very much wanted to meet the needs of inner-city Philadelphia kids a couple hundred years ago. He realized that these street urchins were going to bed every night with no nutrition in their diet. And he said, I need to make a difference. And, and you know, the old Quaker tradition was that you leave the world a better place than when it, you came into it. How can I make it a better place for these street urchins? And he went and tried to figure, because he only had a limited ability to get any nutrition into their life. And so he worked and worked and worked to come up with a little formula and came up with a little cracker that he gave them. And his name was Graham. And the Graham Cracker came out of a man saying, I got to make something in life better. There's also another man, another Quaker man, who realized that a lot of the, in the industrial age, that a lot of the, 
the men would be working, men were the only ones working outside the home predominantly. And as soon as they get the paycheck on the way home, they'd stop by the bar. And many nights of the week, they would stop at the bar and they would drink up whatever they had. And he said, what is it that we can do for these men? And he really, really tried to come up with a non-intoxicating beverage. His name was Hires. And Hires Root Beer came out of that process of how can I make the world a better place. And so we as, when we think about our vocations, are they making the world a better place? Are they in line with biblical traditions? Greg, I know one of the things you've got even on your office wall is something about our job is to make the life better. Do you know what I'm talking about? What is it? Right. Right. I do. And I, you know, when I walk in the office and I saw that and I said, this gives me insight into Greg Shorston about this is his heart, that he really is not just in it for the money. He's not just in it because he gets to go play golf. He's in it because it's really good for humankind. Where, where's the uh, microphone? Well, you know, yeah. the playing golf thing that Greg did, you guys, I don't know if you all know that he's the founder of First Tee here at Gantt, but he took playing, uh, is it on? He took. For those listening at home, hang on. Right, so he took the idea of playing golf and he took it out into the world, and so children in need of that understanding and just to have mentors, and the golf course is on 25th Street. If you haven't seen it, it's wonderful. And the dirt they used. <laughs> you should tell him that part. <laughs> <laughs> you should tell it. <laughs> My voice is like yours. I'm a little, a little raspy. Anyway, the, uh, the story to that, not making it too long, is that the Habitat Project on Terry Bait Circle is about a half a mile down the road. And so Beaver Excavating was excavating this whole uh, cul-de-sac of ground. So we built, you built at least seven homes. Eight homes, okay. Well, they had to, they needed a place to move the dirt from the excavation, and that dirt came over to help build a golf course for kids. So we called it Terry Bait Dirt. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than the dirt on Terry Bait, but uh, but you, you get a sense of of what this means in terms of our vocation and what we choose. And some of us say, "Well, I've, I've already got my vocation. In fact, I'm I'm thinking about or I am retired." Okay, what are you going to do in your retirement? How are you going to serve the kingdom in your retirement? It kind of goes back to those first couple questions. What are your spiritual gifts? What are your natural gifts? What are your interests? It's going to coalesce around those kinds of concepts, but it has to be biblical. It has to enhance life and lead others to spiritual welfare, to their attaining eternal life. Now, if you look below, you've got these boxes, and the first couple are on, on jobs. And how do, the, the ideal is if you could take these two boxes and actually put them right over the other. The first would be, what is the job description? What's the job expectation? And then, what are your motivations? What are your skills? What are your abilities? And if you, when you are going to be finding that vocation for your life, or the the vocation in your retirement, those will go 
right, you're going to be happiest. You're going to be most fulfilled when those are right over each other. And so the key is to match them up. Keeping in mind that anything that is not biblically defensible is not in the will of God. And the same thing for marriage. The first box is the duties and commitments that we have that are biblical, that we are to, and, and this is why it's so important to use those classical vows for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. All of those things about our, our marital vows come out of the biblical concept. A lot of people want to, they want to write their, their own vows, and I will, I will stay with you as long as love lasts. It, it's just not biblical. <laughs> um, and so, again, we're going to be happiest when, when those marital duties are also a desire that we have, that we love the person. We, we are, we're fulfilled in the marriage. We really do desire to be in marriage. And some people don't desire to be married. There are some that a single life is and, it's, and that's biblical. There's nothing, nothing that says you have to be married to go to heaven. But I think from these two ex- illustrations, I think that might be a little more helpful for us to know the will of God with some of these kinds of concepts in the background. Okay, now let's open it up. And what are, what are your thoughts, what are your reactions to any that we've talk, anything we've talked about so far? Well, I've got the mic. I I think one of the things that comes to my mind, even as the whole series has gone on, is it appears that I live most of my days without any real conscious awareness of a concern for the will of God. And uh, where's the line? How many things do we just do because of our natural interests, abilities, predispositions? And how much of it does goes through this kind of psychoanalysis to find out that it is indeed within or without the will of God. Go ahead. God gave you those natural abilities you have, Jack. You don't, you, you wouldn't have gained anything. I said God gave you those natural abilities you have. You wouldn't have been any better if you had thought all the time about, am I doing the will of God? Which is, which is why we, we're saying that some of the natural gifts go into this equation. And, and I, I, would, I would venture to say that somebody in your life gave you counsel. And we call them guidance counselors at the school, at the very least. Sometimes they're parents and others. And when, when students come to me and they say, how do I know the will of God? One of the exercises that I have them do is go get five to seven people that know them and ask those people to f- finish the, the following questions. What do you see me doing vocationally? When do you see me go fast? And when do you see me go slow? What makes me slow? What makes me go? What, what talents and skills? And we have a whole series of questions, and, 
you know what? Most of the time, that comes back fairly with a consensus that, that all those half a dozen people are saying the same kind of thing to those young people. Um, I, and it's a little different today. I think you grew up in a generation in which much of the ethics of your day in the culture supported the biblical ethic. Today, it's not that, that's not, it's, there, there are things that are going on today in our society that would never have been done by folks in previous generations. And I think it's even more crucial for us as a church body when those little babies are baptized and we stand up and say we will do all we can to help them, raise them. And uh, those of you that know Abby Moore who's been involved in this church forever and uh, my wife and Terry were, were childhood friends. Their families were friends. And so from the time that we have known about those children, we have prayed for them. And in one area, for me, because I've been so much involved in basketball, and Abby obviously is involved in basketball, I've been praying for her and, and hoping for her, and, and it's just wonderful for me to see how she's continued to stay involved in the church. And you come to that early service, and you'll often see those twins that are out there now that, that she and Brian have brought into the world. And we need as adults and even as senior adults to continue to be involved in our young people's lives even more today to help give them the, the background that they need to be able to choose vocations that will make a difference in this world for good and not evil. Because there's so much today that is confusing about what's good and what's evil. Any other thoughts, any other reflections? I realize the mic's a little intimidating. We've got one here, though, that wants to... Well, I'm very high on small groups. Small groups. Yes, been part of a women's Bible study for about 35 years. Uh, I see in this church, we're now part of small groups, got started, and I got a phone call that Christ Presbyterian is taking it seriously, that Dee Dee Bailey and her husband are going to be the ones to go to if you'd like to be in a small group. Great um, showing of the will of God and the Holy Spirit at work here at Christ Presbyterian. Not exclusive, inclusive. Absolutely. Anyone else? We've got another one. Well, I also think that if you are confused about something or you're interested in doing something and maybe not brave enough to do it or know that you have the abilities, if you pray about it and then listen, that if you pray about it and leave it to God, that God keeps nudging you, puts that idea in your head or puts a person in your head that you need to reach out to. And, and we have to pray and then listen. Exactly. The Holy Spirit speaking. We need to have our antennas up. Excellent. Let's turn to Acts chapter 
27. And we started a little bit in this last week, and I'm going I'm to suggest to you that sometimes we know the will of God through problems that come to us. And sometimes that we know the will of God because God brings certain people into our lives. This is, a, this is at the time in which Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem and has been held in prison for a little while. And the Jews are trying to get him killed. And the Romans have him in custody. And without going through all these chapters and like the previous five or six chapters, to summarize just to say that he appeals to Rome. He says, I'm going to take my case. I want to stand in front of Caesar. And we're now, he's, on, he's now on a ship that is taking him to Rome for to that meeting and that trial. Now, in chapter 18 of Acts, Paul has come to, he has come to Corinth, and he has been laughed out of Athens. He's been beat and thrown in prison up in Macedonia. He runs down to Athens. They kind of entertain him a little bit. And then they take him to their big, serious Areopagus where all the, the, the highfalutin philosophers are. And he is laughed out. And he's like, beat me and throw me in prison, but don't laugh at me. I mean, that's even worse. And he goes to, to Corinth, and he's really, he's really in a midlife crisis. He's, uh, he's depressed. He's burned out. He's all alone. He doesn't know if anything that he's done in life in terms of going to Philippi and Thessaloniki and Berea and all these places, doesn't even know if the churches that he's, he thought he started were, were still in operation. And he gets into Corinth, and he's just, he's just down. I mean, this is his low point. And just then, just a few months before he had come there, Aquila and Priscilla come in. And they're the ones that, that do the tent making and they're the leather workers and they put up a little shop in Corinth. And if you ever get to Corinth, there's, a, there's an actual place there that you can see that they think one of these half a dozen cubicles was where this was actually taking place. And so Paul comes into Corinth and asks around, is there anyone here that might be of the, of the Jewish faith? And they say, oh, you've got to go over to Aquila and Priscilla. They're, and, and lo and behold, he's got training from his father in exactly what they do. Stitching leather, making saddles, making sandals, making tents, all that kind of thing. And he stays there for 18 months. Aquila and Priscilla had just been thrown out of Rome. They were profitable business people. They were middle-class, solid citizens. But because they were Jews, Claudius says, get thee out. The emperor says, get thee out, and they have to leave. Now, we would say that that's probably not something that's very fun or good. But God in his providence gets Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth so that when Paul arrives, they can put their arms around him and help him recuperate and for 18 months they take this missionary on furlough so to speak and build them up 
Maybe you have a place in your home that you could put a missionary up. Maybe you have something that you can do to help put those people in ministry back together. And while they're sitting around the table and they're stitching and stitching and stitching, Aquila says, Paul, have you ever been to Rome? Rome? You mean the eagle talons that come out and grab us in Jerusalem and throw us in prison? And Why would I want to go to Rome? We can say this now while Jack's still here. Why would I want to go to Michigan? <laughs> Dave has left, but he can hear it on the tape. Why would I want to go to Rome? And Priscilla says, they're stitching away at their table. Paul, if we can win Rome, we can win the whole world. Everything from Rome. Up until that point, Paul was thinking just about Jerusalem and Judea, and then where he was raised up in Asia Minor. And he went home and he did his first missionary journey was all up through there. He only got to Greece because of that vision that he received, knowing the will of God. We talked last week about visions, and he went to Greece. Because Greece is okay. They're secular and, and they've got all this mythological stuff, but it's not Rome. I'm in Canton. I am not going to Maslin. It's, I'm not going there. Paul, Rome. It's after this then that we hear Paul saying, I must go to Rome. I must go to Rome. It's only after Aquila and Priscilla have helped him understand God's will. Are we listening to those people in our lives that God has put in our lives to help us know God's will? And now, now we see him. He's got in his mind that he's going to go to Rome and he's going to be able to, to win Rome and win the, win the world. But now, his view and God's view. Chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment, meaning he is one of the elite guards for the emperor. So he's a prisoner. He's assigned to this, this centurion, Julius. Now they enter these ships, and they go to sea along the coast of Asia, and he is accompanied by Aristarchus. Aristarchus, the Macedonian of Thessaloniki, probably someone that he, when he was ministering in Thessaloniki, came to know Christ. They go to Sidon. And now notice it says in verse 3, that Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Something is happening with Julius, the centurion, the guard of the emperor himself. We sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, meaning they, Cyprus was kind of, if you've got the Mediterranean Sea, Cyprus is all the way up here, and so they're kind of sailing in behind it next to the coast of Turkey trying to, it's more safe, shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, these are places that they had done missionary work in years before, we came to the city of Myra. 
And the centurion found there an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. And he put us on board. Now, Alexandria is out of Egypt. That's where all the grain came from. So this is a grain ship that's going into Rome, and it's going to try to feed the people of Rome. Verse 7, we say, sail slowly many days and arrive with difficulty off Sidness, the wind not permitting us to proceed. And we sailed again under the shelter of Crete, and we passed by with difficulty, came to a place called Fair Havens, which was anything but. Kind of like Greenland is called Greenland for a reason. And now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was over, that was the fast of the atonement in the fall, Paul advised them saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo, but also of the ship and all our lives. Now, he says, I perceive this. And he is telling these experts. Obviously, he'd, he had done a lot of traveling himself. And he's not wild about this. Why is he not wild about it? Because I got to go to Rome and win Rome. And you guys are putting my life in danger. Right? He's on a mission. He knows what his life is about. And he's trying in his human spirit. I perceive that this is going to end up badly. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by these things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to sail from there also. They're trying to make it to Phoenix. Now, what we know is that Fair Havens just didn't have a great nightlife. And if we're going to be holed up for a winter, let's go someplace where we can have more exciting things to do. And then this whole thing starts to go really bad. The wind started off softly, and it was okay, but then a, temp a tempestuous headwind arose, and the ship was caught and could not head into the wind. We let her drive, and running under the shelter of an island named Clada, we secured the skiff, which is the lifeboat, with difficulty. Now notice how that comes in. We were advised not to do this, but now we're going to get into this thing, and now we're going to start looking for our insurance policy. I'm going to get this lifeboat. How are we going to do this? They took it on board. They did everything they could because they were fearing lest they were going to run aground. And they struck their sail, and they were just driven by the wind. Tempest-tossed, exceedingly tempest-tossed. The next day, they lightened the ship. They're trying to do everything now. They're trying to get stuff out of the ship so it can rise up out of the water so it won't, won't run aground. On the third day, we even threw the ship's tackle overboard. They're getting desperate. And now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. We know the will of God. Someone comes to our life and says, this is probably not a wise thing for us to do. But then we do it anyway. And then we try to do everything we can once we're in it to try to make it okay. Thinking like we can overcome God. We can over actually overcome what God wants. If we just do some stuff now in the natural spirit, in a natural um, 
environment, but now it's not helping. Who are you in this story? Put yourself in this story. Are you Paul on the way trying to follow God's will for your life and other people have made bad decisions that have impacted you? What do you do if you're Paul? Are you this Roman guard who's trying to do good things? It seems like he has a good heart, but you're trying, just like Paul doesn't want to go to Rome, he doesn't want to be in Jerusalem. (laughs) I got my family back in Rome. I got to get there. I got to try to get there the fastest way I can. Are you the the, the people on the ship? Are Are you the other? Who are you in this story? And how is God speaking to you about the will? Verse 21, but after a long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me. You should not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. But now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. For last night there stood by me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve. And that angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, men, take heart. For I believe in God and that it will be just as it was told me. However, we are going to have to run aground. So even in the midst of this darkest storm of life, God can come and comfort us. And now notice that Paul doesn't just sit here and say, I think it's not good. No, he's saying God has said. God has visited him. And again, are we going to listen to those messengers of God when they come to us? God gives us messengers, even in our darkest storms. But we have to listen. And we have to obey. Knowing the will of God is one thing. To obey it is another, is it not? And now the 14th night had come, and as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took the, the, uh, the, the instruments and they said, okay, now we're 20 fathoms, now we're 15, and they were fearing that they're going to run across the ground on the rocks. And so they dropped anchors. They dropped anchors. They're doing everything they can in their own power. But then it says, and then they prayed. And then they prayed for day to come. In the midst of our storms, when we've done all we can, are you like me? Okay, God, I give up. I've been fighting you. I give up. I dropped the anchors, but now I'm just going to drop to my knees. And so do we drop our anchors in our humanness, or do we drop to our knees and say, God, forgive me. I've been out of your will. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and they were going to let down this lifeboat, Paul said to the centurion, And soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. 
Somebody's starting to get the message because then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the lifeboat and let it fall off. (laughs) Okay, we're going to start believing in this. Who are you in the story? And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food. Today is the 14th day that we've waited and continued without food. Now you think about seasickness. There's a lot of reasons why they're not taking food. But now he's saying, let's eat. I therefore urge you to take nourishment, and for this, this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Again, God's messenger coming to us. We've started to obey. We're starting to walk a little bit. We've got to continue. And when he said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of all of them. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And here is a Lord's Supper where they're starting to take part in spiritual endeavors to help them to get through. And oftentimes, we have to remember when we're far from God, and even when we don't feel like it, we need to get back and we need to start doing those spiritual, those holy habits. Those holy habits are the things that are going to bring us back into the will of God. And you know what happens then? They were encouraged. You see, you get depressed when you're not in the will of God. You get depressed and you get down because you know you're not doing right. But as soon as you start to do right, you become to get encouraged. In all, there were 276 people. Verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land They didn't even know where they were. But they observed a bay with a beach, and they decided we're going to run the ship over there. And so they let the anchors go, left them out in the sea. They lost the rudder and hoisted a mainsail, and they made it right for the beach. They struck a place where the two seas met. If you've ever been there, you know the, the waves are just going back and forth. There's no consistency, but it's just constant battering. The prow stuck fast, remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. It was then that the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could should swim, jump overboard, and get to land. The rest came on boards and parts of the ship. So it was that they all escaped safely to the land. When we have fallen out of the will of God, there will be repercussions. There will be consequences. Things will happen. But if we can get ourselves back and say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to get back. We suffer a consequence, but we will, in fact, go on, and God will grab us and lead us and make the rest of our lives fulfilling. But now I want you to notice something. Verse 11 of chapter 28, after three months, they come to Rome. It never says that Paul got to talk to Caesar. 
It never says that Paul got to do really anything except lose his head in Rome. He was beheaded. I believe that it was Julius and the other prisoner, the other guards of the prison that Paul reached out to who were the ones that the gospel spread to, all of the Praetorian Guard. And that Paul, through a relationship with this, this Julius, over many months, and through one of the worst situations that anybody could ever go through, being for these weeks without the sun and the moon even being shining, this darkest of life's storms. And he saw Paul calm, Aristarchus calm, believing in God. That he went on. And it is known, it's, it, and this is, uh, it's not in the Bible, but it's in the early records of history that it was through those men that the kingdom was spread. So, whether someone else has caused your problem or you cause your own problem, are you willing to get back with Jesus and say, okay, where are we going? Uh, many of you know that I, I right now am trying to find for myself what is God's next step for me? You know, I've been put in a position that I didn't want to be put in. The job is not there. When I say these things to you, I'm not saying that I've got it all figured out. I'm not saying to you that uh, it's easy. It's real. And there's stuff in my heart that's, that my heart is very heavy on. I'm in the midst of that dark storm. And if you haven't faced a dark storm in your life, you just haven't lived long enough, you will find a dark storm in your life. And how are you going to deal with that? I think that God gives us an opportunity, often in our darkest moments, that helps us even know what, our, what his will for us should be. The wee Scottish lad in Nova Scotia, his mom couldn't hear. And then, later on, people said, that's too bad. But then, oh, it's prepared him because his wife also is deaf. And he could never have the two women most important in his life hear him say, I love you, mom. I love you, my wife. So he went to work trying to send electronic impulses to the ear, and his name is Alexander Graham Bell. And he found his life's purpose through problems. A young man, a middle-aged man right here in Canton, Ohio, working in, in the mills, he goes to one of his son's military graduations up in Chicago, and he's reading in the paper about three little African-American kids who are playing doctor and nurse in the trash receptacle 
and they were injecting each other with needles and came down with AIDS. And he cried out to God. He was an African-American man. And he said, God, this is horrible. What can we do? And in, in his after hours at, at the steel plant, a vision came to him about a retractable shrins so that no one would ever have to be pricked again with any kind of a dirty needle, which has now gone into mass production throughout the world. But that, that obstacle, that dark night of the soul saying, that could have been my grandchildren playing in that receptacle. How can I... What, sometimes we find God's will in our obstacles. When you think about it, every single thing that exists exists as an answer to a problem. You're sitting on something that is an answer to a problem. You're writing on papers, on tables that are an answer to a problem. Every single thing exists as an answer to a problem. They were obstacles that somebody overcame. Your storms in life are indeed obstacles. But I think if you look and you think and you pray and you fast that God can even give you the understanding that they're not obstacles but they're opportunities. Jerry, you look like you want to say something. Let's get him that mic. It, it's, uh, I think the Bible takes this very cavalier. And when we talk about, isn't that nice uh, the, that uh, the centurion wants to save Paul's life? But this, the Roman rule, if you lost your prisoner, you were killed. That's, That's right. it. And so he was taking an incredible risk there to, uh, to spare Paul and the other, other prisoners. I, that's, that's a great point, and I think it also goes to the point that we're making, and that is that Paul had really won him over. And uh, may it be said of all of us. Well, we've, we're a little over time, and I apologize for that. And uh, let, let's just pray to close. Lord Jesus, we pray that anything, certainly that I've said, that would not be of honor to you, not be glorifying, not be edifying, that you would eliminate from all of our minds. And Holy Spirit, only what you want us to retain from these weeks would be maintained and replayed in our hearts and our minds. I pray for each one here. We, we've come because we really want to know your will for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know that, each one of us individually to know your will. We pray now for the service. We pray for those that will lead us. We pray for those of us that will participate that you would receive our praises as we come to give you worship and we pray it all in the name of our lord and savior jesus who is the christ amen thank you good could you stand and join in prayer let's come around greg and I'll make it really quick because I know we have to get to church. But let's just stand around, Greg. It's God's will for us to pray.
We've been told to pray for each other, to lift each other up. We've even been told to lay hands on each other. So let's just gather around Greg. Let's lift him to our God. Father God, we thank you for Greg. We thank you for the teaching that he brought us and for the gifts that you have given him, that he is such a teacher and how blessed we've been in just these four weeks of learning from him. And we now just ask for you to inspire him and reveal yourself to him. We pray that you reveal your will to him. We thank you for so many gifts that you have given him. And we know that he is living in your will. And we just know that there is something there that you have created. Thank you for the time that he's gone through in this search. And, and we ask for you to mend his heart that is broken and teach him forgiveness. We pray, Father, for you to show him how to forgive in a way that just will broaden his life and bring joy to him and we know that you have told us the joy of the Lord is our strength and so we ask for you to show him in a very profound way how much joy he has in his life because of you and that will bring him strength God we ask for you to lead him and we ask for you to bless his family through this time and remind us to keep Greg in our prayers we pray this in your holy son's name Jesus amen Real quick, let me make a couple comments about the next four weeks. You will read about this in the Sunday Bulletin in Second Worship, if you're going to Second Worship, and you will read about this in the Tidings. Dr. Keith Lloyd, a professor at Kent State University who teaches a variety of religion courses and has degrees in uh, rhetoric and composition and religion and the history of the Bible, will be talking to us for the next four weeks about the history of Scripture, the types of literature in the Scripture. He has a particular interest in the persuasive language of Scripture and how those stories have become icons for the human condition. So he has the next four weeks, and uh, I think we will be blessed by his time with us. Thank you.